Hello there, I'm Duncan Crawford and welcome to another episode of Top Class. Today I'm joined by a very special guest. She's a high school maths teacher from Tulsa, Oklahoma, a regular blogger. Last year she was named Oklahoma's Teacher of the Year and this year, in April, she was declared the US National Teacher of the Year. Rebecca Peterson, thank you so much for joining me. Hello, Duncan. Thank you for having me. Can I begin by perhaps, perhaps being the millionth person to congratulate you on becoming US Teacher of the Year? It's quite an accolade. Do you feel there's a lot of pressure to live up to being one of the best teachers ever? Yeah, thank you so much for for the congratulations. But I, I feel deep in my soul that I was not selected because I'm the best teacher. I fully believe there's no such thing as the best teacher. And I think if we could um, get rid of kind of those two words combined, it would do a lot for our profession because we don't want to um, we don't want to perpetuate this idea that teaching is a competition. Right. Teaching is a collaboration. And so I don't think there's any such thing as the best teacher. I think certainly there are very highly effective educators, but I don't think there's one way to be um, highly effective. I think that there are an infinite number of ways to do that. And so um, what I am so excited about this year is to just act as a mirror. I hope that, you know, teachers see a piece of themselves in me or a piece of like their classrooms, but ultimately like what science has taught us a mirror does is reflect light, right? And I hope that I can reflect the light that is happening all across our country in thousands and thousands of classrooms. So what is the role actually going to involve? So the role is really to be sort of an ambassador for teaching um, and for learning. And so the role looks like quite a few speaking engagements, um, quite a few um, events to attend, but just being, you know, one more voice for elevating the profession, for speaking to um, issues like retention and recruitment. For me, I'm very passionate about speaking to issues like women in um, in STEM, particularly in mathematics. Ultimately, it comes down to sort of just being um, being one more voice for educators. So a lot of events, a lot of travel as well. Um, are you going to miss your school and your students? You're not going to be in your classroom then for a year, is that right? That's right. So yeah, it's um, it's about 150 engagements, which means yeah, I'll be out of the classroom this coming school year. Um, which is really bittersweet, right? But I, I really try to frame it as like, I'm not leaving the classroom. My classroom just expanded, right? And my audience is a little bit different this next year. Now, I read that you went to the White House and you received high praise from the US First Lady Jill Biden, herself a teacher. Uh, what did she say to you? I don't remember, I suppose, specific words. I remember how I feel, which also speaks to just Dr. Biden as being a teacher, because that's what we remember about teachers, right, is, is how they made us feel. And what I remember is just not once feeling like I didn't belong there. And um, I'm, I'm an immigrant to the United States. And so to feel just this total sense of welcome from the entire administration, um, you know, it just, it wasn't lost on me and carrying my student stories with me, many of whom are also immigrants or, or first generation Americans. I teach at a district where we have 62 languages represented. Um, like the gravitas of that moment is what I like really carry with me and just kind of how full circle 
it is to get to represent just so many, so many beautiful students for, for the country. So it was a good answer, Rebecca, but basically you're not telling us your <laughs> private conversation with Jill Biden. You're keeping it to yourself. That's okay. Was President Joe Biden there as well? Yes, and Secretary Cardona. We all got to... You had a chat um, with him? Yeah. Give him any pointers on how to appeal to young voters? <laughs> you know what was really, um, really kind of beautiful? We, I got to go into the Oval Office with my family, and my, my father got to come too, who is um, 100% Iranian. He's, um, he's what I call a double immigrant because he immigrated first to Sweden and then to the United States. Um, but it was such a, it was just such a beautiful moment because I uh, my dad just looked President Biden in the eyes and said, please, please don't forget about Iran. And I just thought, you know, it's not I don't know. It's just so, so lovely um, to have these immigrants in this room where so many important and impactful decisions have been made. And here um, here my dad got this opportunity to to speak to, you know, uh, one of the leaders of the free world. It does sound like an incredible moment, and I'm sure your father is incredibly proud of you. Yeah. Um, I note that along with teaching, you write a blog, mm-hmm. the One Good Thing blog, where you give positive updates from your classroom, and which I also read you, you, you've publicly credited your blog with saving your career. Mm-hmm. Why did you write that? Yeah. So my first teaching experience was actually at the college level. I taught at the college level for three years. And then I really decided I wanted to start teaching at the high school level. Um, And, you know, when I tell people this, I'm like, it was like a real shock to my system going from college to high school. And everyone's just like, yeah, what what, what did you expect? But, um, you know, I, I went from this classroom where... Students were, you know, paying to hear what I had to say to a classroom where students were like more or less forced to hear what I had to say. And it was, um, it was a really difficult transition. Um, and I, I truly wasn't sure that I was going to make it. I was not sure I was cut out for, for high school teaching. And, um, and like serendipitously, I stumbled upon this community blog called One Good Thing. And it was a collective of educators from all across the country that committed to writing good things that happened in their classroom. They lived by the mantra that every day may not be good, but there's one good thing in every day. And that quote, I mean, still to this day, every time I say it, it just, it hits me because it like doesn't ignore the demands of our job, right? Like every day may not be good, but it does insist on taking ownership of our day. And so one day, about halfway through my first year at Union High School, I went from reader to writer and just opened up that blog's platform and wrote one good thing and hit publish. And the next day, I I wrote another good thing and hit publish again. And the third day, I did the same. And I just kept going and going and going until after a decade of writing good things, um, the last day of school last year was exactly my 1,400th post. So it's obviously really important to you to focus on those positives, but are there times, you mentioned how hard the transition was to high school, where you do just feel after the end of the day, you're relieved, like, oh, thank God I don't have to be in the classroom anymore. <laughs> it's just, it's a very demanding job. You know, it is. You are, you're not wrong. Um, and it's like we pour, we give, we, we give so much of ourselves. And then oftentimes we come home and 
we have, we need to give more of ourselves to our family, to our children. Um, and, and so that's why like creating to me, these, like these habits, these practices, these people around you to support you is, is vital in, um, in staying in, in the gig. You also write about COVID, the period of the pandemic in your blog and the impact that had on teaching. And obviously there's so much we could talk about on this topic, but I'm interested in knowing about your personal experience from a teaching perspective. During the pandemic, there was so much stress, fear, anxiety. Obviously some people got sick, lost their loved ones, lost their lives. But what was the hardest thing for you to deal with as a teacher managing a classroom? Yeah, so um, most schools in Oklahoma, interestingly, um, I don't want to say stayed open, like, but we were in person. We, you know, that spring of 2020, of course, everything like shut down, right? But then come fall of 2020, we were in person that whole year. Um, we did have, my, my school had a third of their student body opt to be virtual. Um, and so that, that 2020-21 school year, I was I had a, a section of virtual calculus and then then in person. But as you just said, you know, there were quarantines. People got sick and it was just in and out. And sometimes we would pivot to distance learning. And, and then you also had this group that was virtual the whole year. And it was, I mean, when I really pause to think about what educators did that year, I mean, I, I almost like it just, it just brings me to my knees because it just felt like a continual uphill battle. Um, and the hardest thing was, it was just so hard to connect to our students, even those of us who were in person, because oftentimes students were quarantined for weeks on end, or or they opted to be virtual, or we would be in distance learning. And it was just, it just felt like we were spinning so many plates, so many plates. And it was just so very difficult to connect. And that's why most of us went into teaching, right, is is to connect with our students. And it's really hard to connect when you don't have um, a routine or it's really hard to connect over a screen. Um, Was there pressure on yourself to be strong or or to have the appearance of keeping it together for the sake of your students, for the benefit of your students? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. The, you know, I... I remember when we, you know, in the spring of 2020, um, we really, me and my students really like attempted to keep going because we still had an AP exam to study for and to take, albeit virtual. And um, I just remember, I will just never forget, you know, some of those students that would just always come in with a smile on their face and and just like ready to learn and excited to learn. And um, many of them like just truly gifted in mathematics all of a sudden, like just falling off the face of the earth and, and like would not respond to messages, just didn't want to continue learning. And it was it was like and some of these students I'd had for two years and it was a, a side of them I had never seen. And it was so foreign to me. And, you know, I remember reaching out to parents and guardians and, and the parents just being like, you know, I don't I don't know what to tell you. Like, I don't recognize this this version of, of my kid either. And it was so. I don't, it just all felt so big and it all felt so overwhelming. And as a teacher, you like, you, you, you 
are there to help your students, you know, grow academically and socially and emotionally. And um, so, yeah, there is certainly this pressure. I think I'm, I think most of us put it on ourselves, but to be strong for our students. Did you get support yourself in terms of mental health support? Did you have access to any help to support you in that period? Not like systemically. Um, I mean, I certainly had family and friends who were who were my support but um I just think we were all kind of at a loss like we didn't know we didn't know we didn't know what was going on we didn't know how to cope and a lot of that pressure fell on teachers um because we could see our kids changing like right in front of us obviously covid impacted the lessons are there benefits though from the period such as the use of digital technologies increasing that you've continued with since the pandemic subsided yeah um, actually, yes, there was, a, I always say there's this like, huge gift that was tucked into the pandemic for me. Um, I started researching various modes of, you know, learning at, at a distance, basically through technology. And um, I really became a fan of the flipped flipped classroom model, which is where you flip the lesson and the homework, if you will. So instead of coming to class and listening to your teacher talk for you know, maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour, and then doing all that homework kind of on your own at home, doing the assignment at home, those two things flip. So you engage with the content at home, typically through a video that your teacher has created. And then when you come back to class and you work on the assignment together, this idea has been around for for a while. And then I'd heard of it before and I was just very not open to it (laughs) before the pandemic. And then the pandemic kind of forced me to think about it um, more critically. And I I adopted that method the pandemic year where my students would engage with a video that I created and they would do that at home. And then we would come together and work on these problems together. They would have their peers to work through some pretty challenging math content, right? They would have me right there. And it just built this tremendous amount of trust because they knew that I was creating ways for them to be successful. They knew that I valued um, collaboration in mathematics. After that 2020-2021 school year, I continued using the flipped classroom because it was just so powerful. Um, And I now feel like I get to do math with my students instead of at my students, right? I feel like our classroom time is is best spent doing math together. So is this now the permanent way you do it or is it occasionally? No, it's like it's the permanent way I do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, So COVID has completely flipped 180 degrees the way you conduct maths lessons. It's fascinating. Yep, 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 yep. Um, And I think that's like possibly a result of like one good thing as well of just like choosing to see um, that that good can come out of even the best. Do your students always watch the videos in advance of doing the homework in person? Yeah, now let me preface this with saying I, I'm teaching AP Calculus students, right? Um, but yeah, I have access to like how much time they've spent on the videos um, and then I build in questions throughout the videos and they don't know when those questions are going to pop up. And so they have to, and that's why I say it's not watching a video, it's interacting with content. So they have to answer those questions throughout um, the lesson. Uh, but I say like life happens. I totally understand. You're not going to always have that 
that time to watch. And if not, I just ask that you let me know before I go and look to see who watched, um, you know, before class. And as long as they communicate that with me and as long as it's not habitual, then there's always grace. To clarify to everyone listening, they are high school students and these are 15 to 18 year olds? Mm -hmm. Yeah, mostly 16 and 17. Well, look, moving on, I want to talk to you about some of the other challenges that teachers face. There's lots of issues we could discuss. Salaries, working conditions, high workloads, teacher shortages, and much more. But first, I want to ask you about life as a maths teacher and what techniques you use to engage with your classroom when they are potentially a rowdy group of teenagers who might not be that interested in what you're telling them. Yeah, the biggest thing for me is, so <laughs> background, I'm five one. I'm very petite, and people ask me all the time, like, how can you possibly have control of a classroom full of teenagers? And, you know, it's it's all about building trust, and it's all about building respect, and respect is something, you know, we know that is, is earned. And so one of the things I do is I invite each of my students to come tell me their story before school, after school, during lunch, so that like we can learn a little bit more about each other because we know kids spell love, T-I-M-E, right? And it takes about 10 weeks to sit with over 100 teenagers and learn their stories, and those weeks can be heavy. But after those weeks, there is just, I mean, there's this shift that you can you can feel in the classroom, then there's this trust. Um, we have to build that trust, particularly when, when we're about to push them, you know, to, to learn things like the fundamental theorem of calculus, right? There has to be that trust. So find ways to like learn your students' stories, um, another big thing is continuously checking in, um, be that through like mental health check-ins or, or just letting students kind of write what, about what's going on. Just having those check-ins, like small little acts that continue to build that trust. Um, I'm also a big fan of, of contacting parents and guardians and sharing one good thing um, to them. And then the big thing is just having fun. I'm, uh, we play a lot of games in, in my classroom because I want students to feel really comfortable. And if I'm going to ask them to, to help each other through some difficult mathematics, that's a pretty vulnerable thing to do. And so it's about building trust, yes, with them, but also helping them build trust with each other. How do you handle disruptive students if there's one student or a group of students in particular who are badly behaved or not interested or disturbing or impacting the rest of the classroom how do you handle that situation yeah that's where stories come in in great handy because it's helped me change um you know my my terminology of like instead of saying like what is wrong with this kid asking like what happened you know what's the story because i truly believe that behaviors are just um, oftentimes an outcome of, of something deeper, like a story. Um, so I typically will ask that kid or say to that kid, hey, you're not in trouble, but I need you to stay after class. And then I'll say, what's up? Right? What's going on? Has something happened? Have I done something? Right? And, and oftentimes when I put 
put it on myself, you can, you feel that connection rebuild. And you'll hear things like, no, Miss P, I'm, I'm sorry. I, um, you know, I got into a big fight with, with the parent this morning, right? Or no, I found out that, um, that grandpa has cancer. Uh, but like, if we're not going to take, if we don't take the time to learn those stories, then, then we can get into that mindset of, you know, that's just a bad kid, right? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that kid just underwent something massive or is dealing with something big and they're waiting for someone. They're waiting for someone to ask. And I think that that's our, one of our great joys as educators is, you know, that we don't define students by, by one mistake or one accomplishment, but we look at that full story um, and we help them see that they are more than, than one mistake as well. Um, that we get oftentimes get to be one of the people that like pulls that out of them. I think people will find that really interesting. And also, uh, apologies, it appears I've been referring to you by the wrong name. Is it Miss P, how I should be <laughs> calling you? Yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was, I don't know, it's just something that was some a kid started calling me my first year at Union, and it just, somehow it just kept going. And it's my other, other than, other than mom, it's my favorite title. If only I'd known that for the introduction. Carrying on, um, talking about other challenges, and this is a big one, teacher pay. Uh, given the cost of living has been going up, high inflation, and often wages in the US for teachers are low compared to other professions. How big an issue is that for you and your colleagues in Oklahoma? Yeah, in Oklahoma um, is, is what I can speak to. It's a massive issue. Um, currently, we start teachers at thirty six thousand. Um, that's that's minimum. Districts can choose to 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 start higher. The legislature just passed a, a three thousand minimum pay raise, so we're going to be starting at thirty nine. Um, but when I landed back in Tulsa from Washington Week, from the White House, all that, I got into my Uber, and I mean, I didn't, I didn't. I offered nothing, and my Uber driver just shared that he made sixty-eight thousand dollars driving um, driving an Uber last year, um, and so it's a real challenge, particularly as high school teachers, if we're the ones like trying to recruit the next generation of teachers. When our students look at us in the eye and say, "I could make more driving a car and not have four years of school debt," how do we answer that? You know. Um, what what do you say? I, I mean, honestly, I say, I get what you're saying. I get where you're coming from. Um, I would also want you to consider job satisfaction and job meaning, which I know is is really big for this upcoming generation. Um, I I have um, a, a couple students, former students that now work with me in my in my math department. Two of them are going to be going into their fifth year of teaching. And even with the salary um, raise that was just passed in Oklahoma, I inflation adjusted their salaries and they're going to be making less. They have less buying power, let's put it that way, as fifth year teachers than they did as first year teachers. So that's inflation adjusted. And so it, it, this is like this is a really real issue. And I'm not going to claim to have the answers, but I'm very grateful to be having the conversations because 
what we're doing is not working, right? In Oklahoma, we have um, 4,000 emergency certified teachers, and that's about 10% of our teacher workforce is emergency certified. In other words, they don't have a traditional teaching license. And as a mother, that, that concerns me. Well, I'm very grateful that people are stepping up and filling in these roles. As a, as a mom I, um, and as a teacher, I want teachers for my son. I want colleagues for myself who, who really want to be here, right? And who, um, who are thoroughly trained. Are there other pressures, other reasons? Because um, money isn't going to make teaching attractive alone. OECD research in this area shows that higher salaries do not necessarily correlate to whether teachers are happy in the profession. And OECD research also shows that in some countries where teachers are paid well, there are still teacher shortages. So higher pay doesn't necessarily attract people to the profession, it seems, in some cases. So what else can be done to make teaching more attractive? Yeah, I think certainly having autonomy in your teaching that is very attractive to educators. Certainly we want guardrails. Um, Having principals, having administrators that, you know, allow you to really lean into to your passions and and how you teach um, administrators who understand, again, that there is no one way to be highly effective um, and really celebrate differences in educators and the diversity that we bring to the classroom is really big. I think, you know, we talk so much about mental health support for students, and I think having those in place really help teachers as well, but we also need mental health support for, for teachers um, because the secondary trauma that we, t- that we take on um, is no small thing. I, this past year, I've gotten to, to travel all across Oklahoma and, and, and interview various teachers, and I'll never forget this one teacher who had taught for 25 years but she had lost 25 of her students. So an average of one student every year is no longer with us. And not only does she, does she have that that she carries, right? Then she has to come, oftentimes, she then comes back to the classroom and has to be so brave and so strong for her students. And we don't talk about that, like that these students, what do we call them? We call them our kids, Right, we try to live by this philosophy that there's no such thing as someone else's kid, and then sometimes we lose them. You know, sometimes we lose them, and there are few, if any, supports for for educators in the emotional loss that that we experience. So, what do you think needs to change? What would you like to see happen? I I would love to see more systems in place that really prioritize both student and teacher well-being. I would love to see mental health specialists on site um, that both students and teachers could go see. I would love just a larger emphasis on social emotional learning for our students because I think that would that would also help our educators and if we start prioritizing helping our students learn how to cope with breathing techniques, with being outside, with taking care of, you know, your body to take care of your mind, I think that that would also have an effect on educators. And so I think this, like this idea of helping student well-being is intrinsically tied to teacher well-being as well. You mentioned social and emotional skills. According to OECD research, 15-year-olds exhibit lower social and emotional skills than 10-year-olds. There's a big drop-off. As a maths teacher, 
I suppose that maybe I'm wrong. It's harder to bring that kind of education and training into into the classroom. But how do you do it? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, to me, it's like it's not an option not to because the science is so clear, right? That we have to like capture the heart before we can capture the brain. So um, I like particularly in pre-calculus, we have this like weekly. I call it like a social emotional mini curriculum. But so on on Mondays we have Mindful Mondays, and I teach various breathing techniques to help center my students and be in the present and not um, not worried about the past, not stressed about the future, but learning various yeah just breathing strategies. Tuesdays we do Tuesday tips so sometimes I'll give them like some kind of I don't know silly little tip but then um, once a month they get to write to their fourth grade pen pals and so we um, we're working on this intergenerational connection right Wednesdays we have wacky Wednesdays we just watch a silly video from like YouTube or TikTok Um, Thursdays we do thinking Thursdays so we'll often do some kind of non-curricular like a game or puzzle to really highlight that we all have very very different kinds of intelligences right and then Fridays we have free write Fridays where we write one good thing from the week um and I tell them may have not been a good week and I'm sorry if that's the case but we're the again we're the authors of our own story so I still want you to take some time to come up with one good thing so you're obviously passionate about this bringing social and emotional skills learning into your classroom um but has the increasingly politicized nature of education in the US impacted how you feel you can act or teach in the classroom? It hasn't changed what I've done, um, but the rhetoric concerns me. It's just exhausting when, when education is used as a political football because this is, this is our future. You know, the, our children are not, are, are not pawns, you know, and the science is so clear and it's very clear as a teacher in a classroom, that this works, that helping our students connect with themselves is the first step in helping them connect with each other and helping them connect with the content. And so to me, it's, um, it's really unfortunate that we're using our kids' well-being as a political pawn. As a teacher, do you feel that pressure from the political debate about education is it creating pressure from the outside or even within the classroom? Yeah, um, I think it's just like teaching's hard enough, <laughs> you know, um, and we have, you know, so much content to teach, so much now secondary trauma to to help our students kind of wade through while they're, you know, learning again, things like the quadratic formula and Shakespeare um, and, you know, just just so much content to teach that then having this kind of always in the back of your mind of the political aspect of it all is, it's almost just too much, you know, because we carry so much as educators already. And so then to have this other layer, it concerns me. It really concerns me for the profession. In your new role as National Teacher of the Year, will you be given the opportunity to speak to policymakers where this is the kind of thing you could raise? Yeah. I suppose um, as Oklahoma Teacher of the Year, I have had more um, more conversations just one on one with policy makers, which is I think maybe more my my cup of tea, if you will. And that's that's what I encourage my teacher friends to do as well. Is you know my mentor Sarah says it so well is that the goal when we talk to policymakers is just to be invited back. 
And, and I can really resonate with that. Um, and I know like there's this kind of sometimes allure of like, oh, I'll give my opinion and like change everybody. But like, I just don't think people are changed by our opinions. Um, I think people are changed by, by stories. And so that's, that's been sort of um, the route I've taken this past year and that I hope to continue to take is, is just have more conversations over a cup of coffee, right? And just get to get to know each other on a human level um, as opposed to attacking each other over a screen, right? Um, and because I, I truly believe that that there's always common ground. I, I really believe that. And I believe that it's so important to search for where our values intersect. Well, Rebecca, can I wish you lots of fruitful conversations, lots of nice cups of coffee. Um, Rebecca Peterson, Miss P, math teacher extraordinaire from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and of course, US National Teacher of the Year. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been wonderful to talk to you. I can see why you've inspired so many students over the years. And, uh, well, before you go, actually, I forgot to ask you, what next after US National Teacher of the Year, what is the plan? Will you go back to the classroom in Tulsa? Yeah, I, you know what, I, I am just done making plans. Because <laughs> I could never have planned these last two years. All I know is that whatever job I have had, I have done my best to throw my whole heart into that. And in doing that, like the next, the next path has opened. Um, so that's, that's what I'm going to try to do is just be in the present and try not to, um, not try not to worry about next steps. Well, good luck in whatever comes next. Thank you again, Rebecca, and enjoy the rest of your time as National Teacher of the Year. Uh, Rebecca Peterson, everybody, Miss P. Uh, I know this is a podcast, but you can give her a round of applause if you're at home. Uh, thanks to everyone who has listened to this please do catch us again soon for another episode of Top Class all the best thank you Duncan